I'm going to say a phrase, and then after I say this phrase, I'd like for you to respond by saying, Yay, God. Ready? Here we go. He's alive. Yay, God. <laughs> Amen. If you've got your Bibles, open them up to Luke chapter 23. And I'm going to start by saying this. If in the past you've made some choices that were nothing less than a huge mistake, you've come to the right place. If in the future you have some tough choices to make, you hope you don't make a huge mistake with. You've come to the right place today. As a husband and a dad, not to mention as a minister, I am often asked to make some pretty tough choices that almost demand that I seek God's help, but sometimes I just don't. These choices are too complicated and they're too far-reaching. They affect too many people to handle on my own, and God invites me to make them with them, but sometimes, i got to be honest with you, I don't. And usually I suffer. I don't know if I've ever had to make a more difficult choice, though, than the one that I heard about this week one preacher had to make. Two brothers in his town were notorious for their sleazy, I mean downright mean, reputation. They pretty much ruled the town they lived in. Well, one of them died. The other went to the minister of the largest church in town and said, I've got an offer for you. I'll give you $1 million for your church if you'll preach my brother's funeral. But there's a condition. I'm asking you to tell this entire town that my brother was a saint. Well, the preacher was facing a rather difficult moral dilemma. The church needed the money to help build several orphanages in Africa. But there was no way he was compromising the Lord's integrity nor his by saying something that just wasn't true. But thank goodness this preacher was a man of faith. He said... Brother, I'll do it, because he believed God would somehow provide a way to do it. Well, the day of the service came, and the minister stood up and began his message, and the place was packed with people, all wondering what in the world he was going to say about this guy. Well, the minister walked down from the pulpit to the casket, placed his hand on the lid, and said, Now, everybody knows the man inside this box was a thief. He was a drunkard. He was a womanizer, a liar, and to put it mildly, he was a skunk of a man. However, compared to his brother... He was a saint. <laughs> Some choices we face are inconsequential. Some are trivial. Then there's others that come with great consequence and can be life-changing. If you're facing some that are in that significant category that may be life-changing, God has an image, not just a message. God has an image he wants to place in your mind today. But before we get to that, let's bow in prayer. Father, we want to join other disciples at First Presbyterian Church who also today are celebrating with us the power of a cross and the power of an empty tomb. Together, we as one voice in this community say, Yay, God, for raising him from the dead. It gives us such hope that you'll help us overcome some dreadful, awful, shameful decisions we've made in the past. It gives us hope that there's power to overcome some really terrible circumstances we've gotten ourselves into or we find ourselves in that we had little to do with. And Father, we pray that that hope shines in us and then through us to a world that desperately, desperately needs some hope. So much 
so much hurt, so much hate. Please, Jesus, come again and raise our lives so that we can help raise others. But we ask us in Jesus' name and everyone said. You ever heard of Edwin Thomas? My guess is probably not. During the latter half of the 1800s, he was as big a name as Denzel Washington or Matt Damon or Clint Eastwood now. His celebrity status came from the stage, however, and not the screen. At the young age of 15 years old, he made his debut in Richard III and quickly established himself as a premier Shakespearean actor. In New York, he performed Hamlet for a hundred consecutive nights in London. He won the approval of the tough British critics. When it came to tragedy on stage, Edwin Thomas had very few peers. But when it came to tragedy in life, the same could probably also be said as well. You see, Edwin had two brothers. One's name was John and the other's Junius. Both also were actors, even though neither rose to the stature Edwin Thomas did. However, in 1863, all three siblings united their talents to perform Julius Caesar. The fact that Edwin's brother took the role of Brutus was an eerie harbinger of what awaited the brothers and our nation just two years in the future. How so? Well, John, who played the assassin in Julius, he's the one on the end, is the same John who took the role of assassin in Washington on a clear spring night in 1865. And when with stealth and malicious intent, John quietly made his way into the rear box of the Ford Theater, and he fired a bullet into the back of the head of Abraham Lincoln. You're probably already ahead of me. The last name of all three brothers was Booth. Edwin Thomas Booth, Junius Booth, and maybe the most infamous one, John Wilkes Booth. Edwin was never the same after his brother murdered the president. His brother's crime drove him from acting to retirement, and he might not have ever made his way back to the stage except for a twist of fate that happened at a New Jersey train station. Edwin was waiting on his coach when a well-dressed young man, pressed by the crowd, lost his footing and fell between the platform and the moving train in front of him. But without hesitation, Edwin hooked one leg around the railing, and he reached down and grabbed the young man and pulled him back to safety. After several sighs of relief, the young man recognized, You're Edwin Booth! Edwin, however, didn't recognize the young man he had just rescued. But the knowledge came weeks later in, weeks later in a letter that he carried in his pocket, in his shirt, till he died. It was a letter from the Chief Secretary General, Ulysses Grant, a letter thanking Edwin Booth for saving the life of the child of an American hero, Abraham Lincoln's child. Crazy ironic, isn't it? One brother kills a president, and the other brother saves a president's son. The boy that Edwin Booth yanked to safety was none other than Robert Todd Lincoln. It has always fascinated me how two children born from the same parents, raised in the same household, having chosen maybe even the same profession, can be such different individuals. Not just in personality, but I'm talking about in character. In the Booth family, 
One son chooses to save a life. The other chooses to take one. How does that happen? I don't know. I just know that it does. And although this story is dramatic, it is in no way we know unique. Abel and Cain were both sons of Adam. Abel chose God. Cain chose murder. And God let them both. Abraham and Lot were both pilgrims in Canaan. Abraham chooses God. Lot chooses Sodom. And God lets them. David and Saul were both kings of Israel. David chooses God. Saul chooses power. And God lets them. Peter and Judas both deny Jesus. Peter seeks mercy and Judas seeks death and God lets them. In every age of history, on every page of scripture, one truth is always present. God allows us to make our own choices. And nobody illustrates that more than Jesus does. While he walked this earth, he talked about those choices and he says, we get to choose the narrow gate which leads to life or the wide gate which leads to destruction. The company, of Yifu, the company of a few or the crowd of many. We can choose to build our lives on the rock or on the sand. We can choose to serve God or riches. We can choose to be numbered among the sheep or the goats. All of those choices ultimately lead to the most significant choice, however, and that is we get to choose either eternal life with God or eternal destruction with those who don't want to be with God. If there was ever an image that I think encapsulates the difference between those two choices all at once, I think it comes from our next few crosswords that we find in Dr. Luke's gospel or his account of the life of Jesus. Today is the last in a series of three lessons since you've, many of you have not been here this morning that I'm calling crosswords. And they're based in Jesus' seven statements he made from a cross. We're looking at three this year and, Lord willing, four next year. But today's crossword comes in the last hours that Jesus hung on his cross. And they're a part of a conversation that Jesus has with one of the criminals that hung right next to him. When Jesus was crucified, I think it's interesting that it wasn't a solo affair. He was crucified with two others. Most of us know that. Some of us may not have. Luke says one was on his right one was on his left. And I wonder, have you ever thought, why not six or ten? Or maybe you wondered, why was Jesus placed in the center? Why not the far right? Why not the far left? Well, could it be that the two crosses, one on his right, one on his left, symbolize one of God's greatest gifts to mankind? And that is our gift to choose. And I hope by today's lesson, if you don't know it already, that you realize how how great a gift the ability to choose is. God's not the only one who respected humans' choices, though, and attached to them some very specific consequences. Rome made it clear that if you chose to rebel against its laws and its government, there would be severe consequences. And so Rome advertised this truth, billboard style, on a hill of public notice just outside the city of Jerusalem. Now, you could, ver you could view this firsthand as an object lesson just off the main road coming in or out of this great city. On the day that these criminals were crucified, 
It was an overcast day in the spring. Three men were suffering the consequences of choices that they had made. Two of those were criminals, which had much in common. They had been convicted by the same system, condemned to the same death. They were surrounded by the same crowd, and they flanked the same Christ. They flanked the Son of God, who was giving his life that day by choice, not having it taken from him as punishment. Jesus made certain that we would understand the power of that when he told his disciples just before he was even arrested. Listen, guys, I'm laying down my life only to take it up again. Nobody takes it from me, but I'm laying it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I want you to know I have the authority to take it up again. And he made sure they heard it before any of it began to unfold. Friend, the Son of God hanging on a cross was based on a very purposeful, gracious choice. But the two criminals hanging on their crosses on either side did so because of their selfish choices. And I want you to know, both hung equally close to God in the flesh. You say, well, why is that important? Because at the beginning of the crucifixion, both of these guys choose to be as cruel to Jesus as they possibly could at the moment. <laughs> Let's just say they were a little tied up and so they couldn't punch him like the soldiers had. But they could pummel him with their words. We know mocking words were coming from the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders that stood beneath the cross. <laughs> Some of them were, he saved others, why don't you save yourself now? Can't save himself, can he? He's the king of the Jews, huh? The king of Israel? Well, let him come down from the cross and then we'll believe him. So he trusts God. <laughs> let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God, didn't he? And then Luke adds this. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. Is that the definition of a bad day or what? Even his crossmates mocked him. At least they both started out that way. But one changed. One chose to stop belittling him and did his best to befriend him. In Luke chapter 23 and verse 39... Luke writes this account. He says, one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? If so, save yourself. Hey, it'd be good. Save us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? You're under the same sentence. All of us. But we're being punished justly for what we're getting. Our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus answered him, truly, I say to you, today you will be with me, say it with me, church, in paradise. paradise. Wow, who saw that one coming? Since the time this penitent thief's request was made, a lot has been written and discussed about him, and rightfully so. Because I think he deserves our respect and admiration for the humility and courage it took to, to ask that question. When you come into your kingdom, would you remember me? He's done a lot to teach us about how we come even into a saving relationship with Christ. But 
What about the thief that didn't change? What about the thief who wasn't convinced or convicted that Jesus was anything special? I think it's a fair question to ask. Wouldn't a personal invitation from Jesus be appropriate here? Wouldn't a word of persuasion be a little timely here? I mean, Jesus was the one who, when trying to reveal the character of God, gave us three boom, boom, boom stories. He starts with the shepherd leaving the 99 sheep, and he pursues the lost one. He speaks of a housewife who turns a house upside down, pursuing a coin that she's lost. And then he completes that trilogy by talking about a boy who chooses to leave his father's home and chooses to his own destruction to abandon his family. But the father doesn't pursue him. What's up with that? Maybe the answer lies in the fact that the sheep was lost innocently and the coin was lost irresponsibly, but the prodigal left intentionally. He left on his own. Now, that's Max Lucado's theory, and I wanted to share that one with you. And I think he's on target. In other words, the father allowed him to choose a loving father provided room to make a choice and to experience the consequences of that choice, especially when you got a boy who thinks he knows better. So make no mistake about it, friend. There are times when God will provide a tornado to get your attention. But then there will be other times when he will do nothing but provide silence as he honors your freedom to choose. And friend, please know that truly it is an honor to get to choose. Because choice is a beautiful thing. Amen? Ask those who don't have any. In many areas of our lives, we didn't get a choice. I think we just need to address that. I didn't get to choose my parents. <laughs> I didn't get to choose my siblings. I didn't get to choose my nationality. I didn't get to choose this nose. I didn't get to choose that I am nearsighted, not farsighted. I didn't get to choose my nationality. I didn't get to choose the color of my skin. I didn't get to choose my disabilities. And sometimes I think, like me, you've been tempted to say, God, that's just not fair. They were given that and you gave me this. It isn't fair that they had parents who knew the Lord from the time that they were born and my parents were druggies. And I had no choice in that. Growing up, it wasn't fair that others possessed bank accounts with money to waste while we barely had enough to survive, God. I had no choice in that. And why was I born into a country with so many freedoms and opportunities and those just south of the border from us hardly have any? But the scales of life were forever tipped on the side of fairness when God planted a tree in a garden, weren't they? God established once and for all that while, yes, some choices are made for us before we land on this little orb of ours, but thanks to giving us free will, the most important choices he leaves to us. Let me say that again. Thanks to free will, the most important choices he leaves to you. The greatest of which is, is where we get to spend eternity. Almost all injustices of this life that we we came into this world with, had nothing to do with, are offset by the honor of making the choice we have everything to do with. 
And that is, where am I going to make my home forever? Now, would you have preferred it otherwise? <laughs> Some would say, well, yeah, sometimes. Would you prefer to have gotten to chose the size of your nose? Or the color of your hair? Or the height of your body? Or the house you grew up in? But then allow God to choose for you where you spend eternity. I think most days I would prefer his current design of choices. How about you? Now, there are some days it would be nice if like in a cafeteria setting or a golden corral setting, we could walk through it and say, okay, Lord, I'd like to have a photographic memory. I'd like to have some good health. I'll pass on the math skills, but give me a fast metabolism. Amen? A fast one. Some days that sounds wonderful, but it didn't happen. When it comes to my life on earth, I wasn't given a choice. I wasn't given a vote over some very significant things, mind you. But the most significant choice, life after death, that one I've got complete control over. Now, I can say that because not only does the privilege of free will outweigh my, my injustices I have suffered because of some things I had nothing to do with, but the privilege of free will can offset any mistake I've ever had everything to do with. Our penitent thief is Exhibit A. We may not have his life history to read, but we know that this man hanging on his cross has made some huge mistakes in his life. He's made some very poor, some majorly poor choices. He chose the wrong group of friends to hang out with. He chose the wrong standards for his morals. He chose the wrong response to some pivotal choices in his life. But Jesus shows us his life is far from a waste. Please take note, he isn't spending eternity reaping the consequences of all the bad choices he made. No, he's spending his eternity in paradise. Now, I put that one up there for my wife because she loves the thought of heaven being a beach. Choose your beach wisely. Today you'll be with me in paradise, he said. I think that one stuns me. As much as any phrase in all of Scripture, today you will be with me. Say it again. Paradise. One right choice offset all the bad choices he had made. In the end, this thief teaches us one major truth of life, and that is, again, all of my bad choices can be redeemed by one significant good choice. The choice for who's my closest friend. The choice for who's my Lord. The choice for who's my Savior. All of those are simply descriptors of the same relationship with Christ that he offers to every single one of us ragamuffin thieves to get to benefit from. Now, if you don't want to take my word for it, take, take scriptures, take God's, all right? In Romans chapter 10, Paul says, If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord, and if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess and you are saved. And I love how this ends. As Scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. Don't you love that pronoun? Anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. I don't know about you, but I've made some pretty shameful choices. I've made some pretty painful 
choices. I've made some pretty dreadful choices. And he says, anyone, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. If you've chosen the wrong friends, if you've chosen to give more significance to your own truth over God's in regards to your sexuality, if you've chosen the pursuit of wealth over relationship with Christ, if you've chosen to be your own Savior and Lord over the one God gave us on a cross, please know your decision to believe, your decision to trust Him outweighs all of that. Because remember who you're trusting. You're trusting the one who predicted his death at the hands of his own religious leaders. You're trusting somebody who predicted the abandonment of his own disciples. You're trusting someone who predicted his own resurrection and then pulled it off. And then appeared to 500 witnesses over 40 days when he came back to life so that nobody thought it was just a vision. All of that has been written down in historical record. And has never been successfully refuted. Never. So why wouldn't you trust him with your life and with where you're going to spend eternity? Why wouldn't you trust him? I don't understand why anybody wouldn't. Because when you look back over your life and say, man, if I could only make up for all the poor choices I've made, listen to me, you can. If I could only make up for that mistake back that, that evening, that hour, that year, you can. One great choice for eternity offsets a thousand bad ones. And the choice is yours. And I hope today you see the good news in that. Because some of you walked in here today believing you were locked into the prison of your bad decisions. As that video showed us, you were locked in the tomb of some horrible decisions. And you don't think you're ever going to experience paradise there, let alone here. And I just want to tell you, that's a lie. That's a lie. Jesus died on a cross, was raised out of the tomb, and sent his disciples into the world to keep telling this story over and again. That's a lie. Because I've came to give you life, and life to the full now. Eternity is breaking in now, if you want to dive in and be a part. How could two men see the same Jesus and one choose death and the other choose life? I don't know. I just know they did. When one asked him to remember him, Jesus loved him enough to save him. And when the other mocked him, Jesus loved him enough to let him. He allowed each his choice and he does the same for you been praying all week long. Our elders have been praying. Your friends have been praying if you came here today. If you haven't made that choice to say I'm placing my, my life in his hands, I, I choose to befriend him over any other friend. I choose to make him Lord over me trying to be the Lord. You can do that today, right now. I don't know what spurred that thief to move from Someone who was spouting cruelties to someone who said, would you save me? I never know how it happens. I just know sometimes it happens and people don't act on it. And so I'm asking today, if you're ready to act on that, let me tell you where that profession takes place. It takes place right back here. 
The belief is already stirring in your heart. God's already moving you from lost to found. He's already doing that because you're trusting him now. You just complete that by, by going public with it. It happened yesterday in a marriage ceremony that I performed right there in the chapel next door. A couple came and they were in love and they came fiancés. They loved each other deeply. They, they couldn't have loved each other before the service, or more after the service than they did before, but something happened when they went public with that and they united to each other in a covenant of love before me and God in a gathering of family of friends and witnesses. They moved from fiancé to married. You can move today from lost to found just by doing the same thing. And that ceremony of being baptized in the Christ is, is connecting you with his death so that you can be raised to walk in a brand new life. I don't know how it all works. I just know it works. And we're offering you the invitation to be baptized in that. And if you have been, but you've been making some choices that aren't reflecting that, we'd love to wrap our arms around you and say, come on, let's, let's do better by him. I don't know what's stirring in here today. I just don't. But the Spirit does. And so we're going to stand and sing, and we're praying that if he's stirring you to make a decision for Christ or to get right with Christ, you'll do that right now while we stand and while we sing.